You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Love the parenthetical there. Um, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. You please be seated. Craig's very kind introduction reminded me of that great headline from the the satirical site, the Babylon Bee. Um, Local woman cannot wait until husband hears pastor's sermon on self-righteousness. I think it's a classic one. Um, But that's actually not what I'm talking about here today. Thank you again for welcoming me so warmly. It is really a thrill and an honor and a privilege uh, to be here among you, and it's just been a blast these 48 hours. Some of you may know my brother, John. He has come a long way since the days when we lived in Birmingham. But one thing hasn't changed. His taste in music is still terrible. I'm just kidding. He would say it's great, because in addition to being a man of the cloth, ordained and now the rector of a church up in uh, Bedford, New York, he is a disco DJ. And he likes to listen to music that was made between the years 1975 and 1985. If it falls outside of those years, he doesn't want to hear about it. Um, And I was asking him something about it, because I noticed something about the bands and the groups that were making music during that time. Um, They were always um, adding extra letters to their name. So there's a band called Video, and it's spelled V-I-D-E-E-O. And there's a band named Aura, and it's spelled A-A-U-R-A. And then, of course, there's a heavy metal band that came later called Rat, and it's spelled R-A-T-T. I said, what's this about? What was going on there? And he said, well, you know, Dave, you always got to add a little something. We're at the beginning of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and people seem to be bragging. Paul's addressing those who are bragging about who they were baptized by. They're referring to religious identity markers. Who signed my certificate? Some say Cephas, some say Apollo, some say Paul. They're dividing themselves according to who they consider to be their leader, their affiliations. They're these super apostles. It makes Paul upset because he thinks they are adding a little something to the gospel. It's Jesus plus 
I got baptized by that guy. And this is maybe, it's not a first century problem. Uh, today, we think uh, religious people, but you don't have to be religious to be involved, uh, caught up completely in the project of justifying yourself. But we say, okay, yes, yes, I believe in, in, in Jesus, but I also go to that church and not that one. I'm also uh, a person who went to that school and not that one. Didn't you see the sticker on the back of my car when I pulled in here earlier? I belong to this family. And I voted for this candidate. And we are part of the order of the Cincinnatus. I don't know what it is. We, we, we are first families of Virginia. That's a big thing where I live and work in, in Charlottesville. It's Jesus plus pedigree, plus sophistication, plus resume, plus bank account. You add something more in order to be something more. We all do this. And we do it in myriad ways, whether or not we include Jesus in the equation at all. I call it the tyranny of more. And I spell that M-O-R-R-E. <laughs> Reading about this, I was reminded of the amazing book that came out a couple of years ago by Ruth Whipman. She is a British journalist who moved to California. And it only took her a couple of years in California to decide she needed to write a book called Anxious. How our pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. This is, she writes, she says, the same questions would come up repeatedly in conversation with my neighbors. These were the questions, am I happy? Am I as happy as my neighbor? Am I as happy as my friends? Am I as happy as everybody on social media and the internet? Could I be happier if I tried harder? There was a real anxiety, she noticed about being as happy as you possibly could be. This is uh, actually a, a sort of a California, but just an American version of what economists call the local ladder effect when it relates to earnings. In fact, it, what, and what that means is that having a higher salary won't necessarily make you a happier person, but having a higher salary than the person you live next door to will. Right? I'm just, hey, I'm just the messenger. Um, in America, to be happy is simply to be happier than one's peers. And this, this takes on, I mean, we can talk about it in kind of frivolous ways, but uh, the uh, psychoanalyst uh, Esther Perel has done a lot of studies about why it is people in marriages uh, commit acts of infidelity and why they cheat on one another. And she said, by and large, it's not because people are unhappy. It's because they think they could be happier. And that's what leads them to stray. But the compulsion to maximize our happiness, according to Whipman, of adding something more, is creating its opposite. In fact, the higher respondents rate happiness in, in like studies, in, the higher that you rate happiness as your personal ambition, the less happy you are generally and the more likely you are to experience symptoms of dissatisfaction and even depression. In fact, an international comparison study of moment-to-moment -moment happiness of people living in different nations ranked America at an underwhelming 25th in the world, two places behind Rwanda, which if you, don't, if you didn't see Hotel Rwanda has undergone terrible tragic genocide. 
So what's going on? Well, we see in this letter to the Corinthians that even if it's something good you're trying to add, something good like who baptized you, that's a great thing that you've been baptized. The impulse to add something more so often creates something less. Less unity, less cohesion, and less love. Because make no mistake, and this is part of what I'm trying to do in this this book uh, Craig mentioned, something good will become a vehicle of division to the extent that it becomes a vehicle of more. When parenting becomes a new ladder to climb, when work becomes nothing but a ladder and not a satisfaction in the work itself, when romance becomes another hierarchy where you are maximizing your, how much love you could possibly give and receive with someone else, what we find is that the higher on the ladders we climb, the longer they get. Just ask the most successful person you know. Just ask the most good-looking person you know. And guess what? They will be the ones who are most acutely aware of their blemishes. It's universally true. But let's look at it from a larger perspective. The spread of, I was reading about the spread of labor-saving devices and technology that transformed the lives of housewives and domestic servants across Europe and North America at the end of the 19th century. It's fascinating. Technology was introduced that now meant that washing clothes no longer involved a day spent over a mangle. A vacuum cleaner could render a carpet uh, spotless within, in minutes. And yet, the historian Ruth Cowan demonstrated in her classic 1983 book, More Work for Mother, that the result of all these labor-saving devices was not an increase in leisure time. Instead, as efficiency in housework increased, so did the standards of cleanliness and domestic order that society came to expect. In other words, now that the living room carpet could be kept perfectly clean, it had to be. Now that clothes never needed to look grubby, grubbiness became all the more taboo. But think about it in your own life. Now that you can answer a work email at midnight, you need to. I mean, should that message you got at 5.30 p.m., can it, it, it can't really wait till morning, can it? Have you ever gotten those emails? Yeah, you, you haven't responded to me. Where have you been? Well, I've been asleep. I, I, I have to sleep sometimes. But this is, is this always on productivity we talked about yesterday. But when we make religious practice into a matter of more, the danger is not that we get tired so much as we turn God into something he's not. Martin Luther put it this way, brilliantly. He said that men fast, pray, watch, suffer. They intend to appease and deserve God's grace by their exertions, but there is no glory in it for God because by their exertions, these workers pronounce God to be an unmerciful slave driver, an unfaithful and angry judge. They make a liar out of God. In other words, our need to add something more constitutes a self-centered refusal 
to believe that God's approval of us in Christ is full and final. It's an affront. It's not neutral. And therefore, Paul's response is, is quite, um, I mean, it's quite enthusiastic. He says, one, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Two, Jesus Christ is not divided. He cannot be made less. And three, he says, the gospel is more important than its outward sign. Not who you are affiliated with, but who has affiliated himself with you. That's what's going on here. And then he gets to the heart of it. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Which I might translate as the things that you think make you exceptional or righteous are actually spiritual impediments because those are the things that convince you you don't need God. It's counterintuitive. But the things that make you less than other people, that is actually where you appreciate the largeness of God's power and love. That's actually what unites us, by the way. And that's actually what baptism is really about. I'll give you one closing illustration, then I'm finished. Maybe you've heard of the doctor in triple amputee, B.J. Miller. He's been featured on TED Talks and all that kind of stuff. He's a well-known palliative care physician at a hospice out in San Francisco. And he lost his limbs in college when he grabbed hold of a um, power line, you know, at a, at, when he was playing with a thing and he got shocked and it was terrible. And um, he, for a long time after the accident in which he lost both of his legs and one of his arms, no visitors were allowed in his hospital room because the burn unit was a sterile environment. And he was glad for this because he was so distraught about everything that he thought who he was, a healthy, strapping young man, had been taken away from him. He didn't want people to see him in this new state. But on the morning that Miller's arm was going to be amputated, something interesting happened. A dozen friends and family members packed into the 10-foot-long corridor between the burn unit and the elevator just to catch a glimpse of him as he was heading into surgery. Miller recalls, they all dared to show up. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. Meaning his was a case in which the experience of being loved at your darkest, ugliest, and most despondent birthed a passion for caring for others in their own perishing. He's, he's a brilliant palliative care doctor. He writes, parts of me died early on, but that's something one way or another we can all say. I got to redesign my life around this fact, and I tell you it has been a liberation. People who come and flock to him and have been so moved by his works, they say, we know from seeing him standing in front of us that he has suffered. We know that he has been at the brink of the abyss that he's talking about. That gives him an authority that others may not have. Miller's wounds represent not only the means of his own liberation, but the channel through which he reaches his patients.
And if it sounds somewhat Christ-like, well, a friend noted in the New York Times writing about Miller that it's impossible to describe what it feels like to be with Miller. People feel accepted. I think they feel loved because he comes to them in his subtracted form and he imposes no more. No M-O-R-R-E. No one would ever ask for what's happened to him, but what looks like the worst thing, well, you can fill in the rest. Because ultimately, we are gathered here today to talk about Jesus Christ, who became less, first a baby, and then submitting himself to humiliation and death, the foolishness of the cross, which we are told is the power of God. So you, my friends, where are you clamoring after more? And where is more being demanded of you? And who are you asking for more from? And where do you feel impaired? Well, I'm here to tell you that the gospel is not about adding anything, but about being added to something. It does not have to do with lining up your affiliations, but about the God who is undividedly loyal to you despite your disloyalty to him, who instead of looking at you and saying more, looks at you and simply says, mine. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.